the most recent quilt paintings, which coalesce to a, a much larger kind of grouping on the wall. Uh, started in 2020 when we were asked to to leave Whitworth University to shelter in place during the pandemic. And uh, like everyone, I felt isolated and lost and confused and didn't know where to turn or who to talk to about these things because everyone is dealing the same thing. And so I turned a little more inward and turned to the studio and started making these paintings that are six inches square that I could start and finish relatively quickly of single quilt blocks, so a single quilt pattern that sort of helped me mark time and helped me feel productive through this, but also carrying with them, I hoped, and I think they do maybe, I hope that they carried with them the the notion of, of comfort and healing and of love that quilts afford. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 251st episode, I'm super excited to be joined by Rob Fifield, who spoke with me from Spokane, Washington, where he lives and teaches at Whitworth University. We talk a bit about the importance of studying art and all of the people that you interact with along the way, all the important teachers, and Rob talks about that a great deal, especially those that taught him about color and teaching, specifically Lyle Salmi and Jim Mai. And of course, we talk about Rob's artistic journey, how that began studying art and looking through all sorts of art history books, how that evolved into making art and exploring various ideas of landscape, and in later years, becoming really fascinated and interested with quilt making after seeing an exhibition. And of course, we talk a bit about how that evolved into his most recent work and his response essentially in the last year to the pandemic, which has been to produce and produce and make a bunch of work and kind of just focus on that. So again, it's very exciting to see all of these paintings. At this point, I believe Rob said that there's about 200 or so of these little paintings that he's been making. So we talk all about that and process and so much more coming up. It's a fun interview, a lot of little insights into his background. So again, a great studio journey. If this is your first time joining Studio Break, I want to welcome you and invite you to check out the other episodes that are featured on StudioBreak.com. We've got a bunch of artists up there. Each of our posts have images of the artist's works, links to their websites, and of course, you can listen right there on Studio Break, or just click those links and subscribe to the podcast. It's a great studio companion, and you've always got something to listen to while you're working away in the studio, filling your head with interesting thoughts. We are on social media, so be sure to follow and like our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter, at Studio Break. And, of course, be sure to say hello on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. All right, and we are set, so enjoy this episode with Rob Fifield. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break, Rob Fifield. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah, it's great to finally have you on. I know, you know, as we've been kind of chit-chatting a little bit, it's great to have you on and especially to talk about paintings and recent works. I know especially COVID's been kind of a interesting time for all of us, but especially for your production. So welcome. Thank you. I, I love learning all about people's backgrounds and you're somebody, again, that while we've crossed paths, I don't really know much about you other than I believe went to Millican uh, for undergrad, if I'm not mistaken, but maybe, you know, give us a little bit more. What, what did you like to do when you were growing up and, and maybe tell us a little about that? I'm not originally from, from Illinois or the Midwest. I'm from Montana. Oh, I was born in Wolf Point, Montana, which is the largest city on the Fort Peck Indian reservation. 
I suppose at that time I had maybe 2,000 people. Mm-hmm. The Fort Peck Indian Reservation is home to the Assiniboine, the Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota tribes. Uh, my family is all is all from Montana. That's where the vast majority of them still still live. Like my mom's family, homesteaded in western Montana in the Bitterroot Valley uh, in the 1880s. So before Montana was a state, my mm-hmm. family was uh, was there settling Montana. And so I've always had a good connection with Montana. I go there at least every other month. Living here in Spokane now, but when I was one, <laughs> we moved from. Wolf Point, Montana, to Iowa. I spent my childhood moving around the Midwest. I've lived in Iowa, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and then we've moved to other states kind of around there, too. I went to three high schools in three different states. And so that that kind of upbringing, that, that sort of constantly being moved around, for me, worked really well. It was exciting to go to a new place uh, and to learn about the, the things in that new town going to, you know, the the only person I knew was, were my parents. And so they were my best friends and mm-hmm. we would you know, be in junior high and, and like, we'd go to museums and we'd go to theaters and we'd just kind of like experience whatever new town we were in uh, as if we were tourists kind of all the time. And it was fantastic for me growing up that way. When I was young, the, the kind of things I liked doing were, you know, playing completely untethered outside by myself. I remember being in uh, maybe sixth grade, and uh, I would spend my summers uh, back home in Montana with my grandparents, again, largely sort of untethered. And uh, I remember being in sixth grade, and uh, I had a motorcycle. <laughs> and That makes sense. <laughs> I had a Honda Trail 90 from like the 70s and loved it. It was yellow beautiful and uh, I remember one day that uh, it was like 10 in the morning started my motorbike I told my grandma I'd be back later and again sixth grade I just drove my motorbike up into the mountains as far as I could get I then hung out for a while and then came back down and it was like six o'clock it was dinner time I didn't bring any food I didn't bring anything (laughs) just me and probably like jean shorts, a t-shirt, and a motorbike, and I just went. And it was that kind of experience of just being allowed to explore and sort of be a little like free range as a child was so exciting. Because then I would come home to the Midwest, and there were there was school, and there was rules, and there was schedules, and there was all of these kind of things that I found completely uninteresting to me. Yeah, I was going to say, in, in preparation for this, I just imagined you blowing stuff up or something in the woods. I don't know why. Not blowing stuff up necessarily, but... Yeah, that, I mean, that would probably be the only <laughs> thing I would bring with me in my pockets would be, like, if fireworks were illegal. Right. <laughs> any money I had, would I would buy M80s, which is like a quarter stick of dynamite. You know, the best toys growing up were uh, matches and explosives. <laughs> um sticks and rocks so sports were not your thing uh it sounds like exploring and just kind of being on your own was something that was really important i did play sports oh really yeah i really loved playing sports i played basketball i played tennis baseball i wasn't any good (laughs) uh but i loved playing them played 
Little League Baseball and absolutely adored it. My specialty in Little League Baseball was taking a pitch to the middle of my back. <laughs> that got me on base. When pitches started coming in too fast, I quit playing baseball. But I'd still go to Little League games when I was uh, even a kid and I uh, still love baseball. Well, right on. Were, were you somebody that was like kind of drawing and like trying to make artwork and stuff like that when you were growing up and, and studying in school? I know, again, it sounds like when you got to the Midwest, you know, you can't just ride a, a motorbike all day and, you know, just show back up again. But were you taking like all sorts of classes and stuff like that? Or was it something that came later? When I was a kid? No, I, I had zero talent <laughs> that, you know, translated to zero interest in, in art. I think my kind of earliest interest in art. My grandmother was a, a, a landscape painter. She painted a lot of plein air paintings of, of Montana. I have lots of her work and cherish it very much. She passed away. My, uh, my grandma, Lois Whetstone, she passed away in 92. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know her well. She she died of Lou Gehrig's disease. I had really little interest in, in pursuing art myself. You know, being a teenager, maybe 14, 15, I started being really interested in reading lots about art history. And so any money I would get, I would go to the used bookstore and find art history books that I thought were interesting with interesting paintings in them and and buy those and, and read them and kind of thinking like, who wrote these books? <laughs> and thinking like, is that's a job I could do. I, I Maybe I want to be an art historian. And it was in researching and looking at art history as a early teenager that I started finding artists that sort of showed me the path that that I could do this to that art making wasn't about the things I had thought it mm-hmm. was about it wasn't about how well I can recreate a still life it wasn't how well I could draw a portrait it had to do with so many other aspects so many other things could make art you know that's something that we all kind of can relate to, you know, especially as, as we're both teachers, you know, students can sometimes kind of really get caught up into thinking like, you know, art is one thing right now. I'm starting, you know, some color theory stuff in in my 2d class and, you know, students that have never used paint before and they think, Oh my gosh, like I can't do this. And I think, you know, when you kind of start learning those, those basic fundamentals, you start realizing like, Oh no, this is something that could be really interesting. But was there some kind of moment or anything like that where you kind of have more of like a formal education relative to it? A really important book to me when I was maybe 15, 16, uh, I got this big monograph of uh, Rene Magritte and just poured over that book, read it cover to cover so many times. I loved it. And uh, when I was maybe 17 years old, I was in Mount Zion, Illinois, which is just outside of Decatur, Illinois. And uh, my friend Nick Stoley and Darren Doty and I, they were seniors. I was a junior. We all met up in the school parking lot and we got in, I don't remember whose car, and then we just drove to Chicago. Instead of going to school, <laughs> we went to the Art Institute. Uh, it was the first real time I was there. I wasn't brand new student to that school. It was my first year. And so we just drove up to Chicago, uh, went to the art museum, and then I saw Rene Magritte's work for the first time in, in real life after poring over that book for a few years. And I saw his work, and I was overcome with how that work just reeks of effort. Mm-hmm. The work is labored. There doesn't seem to be anything easy about it. He doesn't look like a good painter as I was seeing other works in the museum, 
it just looks like he struggles with color and with composition and with all of these things, but he does it. And I was struck with how bad they looked. Interesting. And I said, I can make bad paintings too that are that are this interesting. It didn't make me not like him. It made me love him even more. And that was really like kind of the start where I was like, yeah, we can, I can do this. And then the the three of us, Nick and Darren and I, we, you know, we're in high school. We started renting studio space at uh, it was called gallery 510 in decatur illinois we started renting studio space in this old victorian house there was gallery space downstairs and then a couple studios in there and that was like kind of it like i'm i felt like i'm 17 years old and i'm paying money to rent studio space like this is it <laughs> i'm doing it like uh, and i was in uh, i went to richland community college after i graduated because i didn't care about high school and so my grades were not great and so i went to richland community college there was a professor there phil smith who is is now retired uh, i like phil smith so much he taught art history uh he's a painter as well and uh starting to like actually take a class in art history this thing that i already knew a lot about was so exciting i felt like high school was a waste of time and uh, that, that college was was exciting to me after a year at richland community college i transferred to Millican University, which is also in Decatur, and met a guy who had become and remains largely a, a very important mentor to me, Lyle Salmi. Mm-hmm. He's a tough-as-nails Finn. Uh, I love him to death, and uh, it was a, a really great time. I remember being, uh, I think it was a sophomore, and I said, uh, hey, Lyle, I want to do what you do. And he said, what do you mean you want to do what I do? And I said, I want to teach. I want to teach college. <laughs> How do I do that? And uh, I was pretty convinced he was just going to laugh at me and walk away. But he was like, are you ready to work harder than you've ever worked? And I said, yeah, yeah, I think so. (laughs) And he said, all right. And then he pushed me and started equipping me with the the skills I needed to to teach classes. When I was a junior or senior, he let me teach classes occasionally to drawing one, which was exciting to get like a little bit of practice. Like, you know, I'm a senior and um, just teaching like one day like uh, he let me write a lesson plan and like go through it just to get some practice as an undergrad and uh, it was uh, so exciting to to do that I felt alive when I was teaching and I knew that that's really what I wanted to do and uh, he really helped sow those seeds for me so Lyle if you're listening thanks so obviously you know everybody has those kind of like uh, introductory courses that I'm you know like you were kind of describing earlier maybe not being as interested in you know depicting the still life as amazing as possible but you know maybe kind of just paint us a picture if you will you know what what did your work look like when you were exiting that that experience I mean because I know you as somebody that you know does a lot of abstraction and you know certainly utilize a lot of color is is that something that was kind of present then or were you still kind of making work I guess in a different mode uh when I, when I was in undergrad yeah like at that end of your experience you know like what were you making something that Lyle did that was really exciting was he afforded me the kind of freedom that I felt like riding my motorcycle through the mountains when I was 13. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was that kind of freedom that I could do whatever I wanted. My work took lots of turns through through undergrad. I guess the best way I could describe it, there was kind of a period where I was stealing everything I could from Philip Guston. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there was a, a period where I was stealing everything I could from Squeak Carnwith. 
And then there was a sort of finishing the period where I was stealing everything I could from uh, Agnes Martin and Sean Scully, probably more Sean Scully than Agnes Martin, stealing Agnes's sort of thinking and writing and, and approach to art making, but Sean Scully in, in sort of appearance. And so transitioning from making work that was kind of cartoonishly figurative, like Gustin or Squeak Carnwith, and then transitioning into more kind of geometric abstraction like Sean Scully and others, Frank Stella, that transition felt slow, but looking back on it, you're like, man, I was only there for three years. I was just light speed kind of moving through that. And uh, so it was a, an incredibly rewarding time to, to study with Lyle. There were so many students that had come before me that really kind of paved the way with sharp stones, right, to kind of toughen us up. People like Ben Gardner, mm-hmm. Angie Zielinski, Sarah Smith, Erica Warhouse, Katie Hinton. These people really kind of showed those who were a couple years behind them the path to to being successful with this. It was a tough program. We were mean. <laughs> we were uh, really aggressive and we'd hurt each other's feelings. But then after a critique, we'd just go to lunch and everything was fine. So it's great. And I think that seems like something that's so common, you know, in, in terms of like the, you know, communities that you build, you know, the way that you kind of feed each other and kind of, you know, call each other out when somebody's being lazy or, you know, anything mm-hmm. like that. So, you know, I think that's something that's really kind of awesome about, you know, art in general. But then, you know, just as being a person now, you know, living in COVID times, it's like, you know, we have our crew of people that <laughs> are kind of really there to kind of support us and, and guide us. And, you know, it's something that I would imagine is maybe like a math student, you know, has like that type of experience, you know, <laughs> but I, I just can't imagine it, you know, because um, there's those moments where you kind of like invest all this time into something and then it's like, oh, this is garbage. Like, yeah, it is garbage, you know, you know, moving on from that experience at Millican, you know, what came next and. I guess, did you have like goals then? Like, obviously you're going to go to ISU so that you can, you know, get teaching experience, I'm assuming, and then obviously to, to focus more on your work. The reason that I, I went to Illinois State University for my, my graduate work was that I had gotten to know, or uh, at least met um, Jim Mai. Mm-hmm. I had helped hang one of his exhibitions at Millican University when I was an undergrad. And the whole time I'm hanging Jim's show, I am just ridiculing and brutalizing his work (laughs) i hate it i hate i hate this work terrible and then he gets there i meet him he's a nice guy still hate his work at the end of the the exhibition he does a lecture and uh, i listen to jim Mai speak about art making and he is weaving together this narrative about color theory and composition and how these things are related. I'm kind of like maybe being overly dramatic with this uh, the description of his lecture, but he's talking about astronauts untethered from spaceships floating freely in space and connecting this to Mayan architecture <laughs> and uh, Hindu architecture and, and Chaco Canyon, and he is pulling all of these strings together, and everything is making absolute clear sense in a way that I've never known art to make such clear sense. And I went from one hour ago, hate your work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now I want to go to where you are. Sure. I, I, I need, I need this. 
and so Jim Mai was was the 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 reason that I wanted to go. Also, lots of other uh, really great benefits to going to ISU at the time. Shona McDonald was there at the time. I wanted to work with her. Mike Willie obviously was there. He's he's still there. I wanted to work with Mike Willie. Uh, he's also an Millican alumni, mm-hmm. uh, a really wonderful teacher, and I wanted to to study painting with him. So, wanting to go to grad school was a little bit of. I don't know that I I really wanted to like step out on my own and assert my own kind of voice i i had things i still wanted to learn mm-hmm. and things i still needed to learn and i knew that i needed to learn them it was a great opportunity to work with the wonderful faculty at illinois state who taught me so much and gave me so much of their time so well and that's you know something that sticks out to me obviously you know as as an alumni you know i had the pleasure of having jemai for color theory and you know that's still something that absolutely feeds my work and you know i'd imagine that that's something obviously like as it sounds you know something that you know struck you but then also the way that he would kind of describe it and kind of talk about it and i guess you know to kind of like think about that experience i mean you know maybe kind of give us some highlights in terms of that experience were there were there big transitions that went on in terms of your work i think even when i met you you know started working at hobby lobby where i was leaving i think uh, maybe to go to graduate school and i think when i met you there was like a very specific list of rules for painting and I'm just curious if that was something that, you know, you expanded upon while you were there. And I, I remember uh, starting at Hobby Lobby and then yeah, you you were there. And what's his name? Chris? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It wasn't so much like rules, maybe. And that, that didn't last very long. But they were just like <laughs> ways to keep me focused, at least. And that any rule that I would have put in place would have been sort of for me for a temporary kind of time to like keep me focused so I didn't lose track of what I was actually after mm-hmm. so that you know I didn't get in my own way. Yeah, the the work I started making in, in grad school, first year I just kind of like explored and was encouraged to to play. And then my second year, maybe late first year, I started kind of being more invested in the notion of landscape painting mm-hmm. and started making landscape paintings loosely described as landscape paintings taking the the tropes of all the type of landscape painting and, and kind of putting them together to make something with more information so i was generating images from cartographic sources combined with bob ross painting techniques combined with kitage or avery kind of loose sort of landscape aesthetic and just kind of folding them all together to, to talk about the language of landscape painting. And that was the thing that was more interesting, not landscape, but language uh, and how we visually render uh, and how we visually communicate things and, and to what purpose and, and to what purpose they serve. And so it was really that that kind of combining of languages perception that led the last two years of my grad work, uh, making landscape paintings sort of landscape paintings. (laughs) So you're just talking about language and landscape painting and obviously this going back a ways because, you know, 2008 is a long time ago. Mm -hmm. You know, what happened after that? I mean, I would imagine... You know, just kind of like anybody that's in that that facing that experience, it's always kind of like awkward, like what happens now kind of thing. But did you kind of start working right away or did you start applying for jobs? What what happened? After graduate school, uh, I got a really great opportunity to 
teach two classes a semester at Illinois State University. Jim Mai went on sabbatical, and so I was running the 2D program, mm -hmm. was Jim Mai for, for 2D, and it was very exciting to do those lectures that I had loved watching Jim do for undergrads at ISU. I also had a chance when Lyle Salmi went on sabbatical to teach printmaking at Millican, and so I was driving down there to teach printmaking, and uh, Andy Messerschmidt, an artist from Mankato, who was an alumni of Millican, he was teaching painting down there, uh, living in Lyle's house, and uh, uh, we had a, an amazing time hanging out. Yeah, so I was teaching and then immediately started making work. I, I transitioned from wonderful studio that we get in, in graduate school, which, you know, is like just a, a dirty, empty <laughs> square with cement floors and wood walls, and it's perfect. It's beautiful. Right? I can't imagine a, a better place to be. And then graduated, and all I've got is a card table in my bedroom in my little apartment. So I started making small watercolors. I, I transitioned from making paintings that were four feet by five feet really involved big paintings to making watercolors that were like 11 by 15 around that size. I'm still working with the same ideas, talking about the language of landscape painting, talking about how it is we understand how we give and receive information from the external world. And so I continued with that for several years, maybe until kind of 2013. Knocking out a ton of them, too, if I'm not mistaken. You're making lots. Yeah, lots, hundreds of paintings. Around 2010, I started working for the McLean County Art Center, which was an amazing job. I got to, to learn from Doug Jansen, our executive director, as well as Allison Hatcher, the curator, both of them giving me really amazing insight into the world of community arts programming, as well as curating. I learned so much from the two of them. Got to meet so many amazing people, members of our board, as well as just members of the Art Center, community members who would come in, as well as so many artists in my time there, spending uh, three three or four years uh, working for the Art Center uh, was was wonderful. And I'm still making those same kind of landscape paintings through through that time. The landscape paintings were largely vertical in terms of appearance. I'm painting lots of mountains interested in mountains and sky and ground and this connection between these these three parts and living in in central illinois seemingly longing for the mountains of of montana mm -hmm. 2013 i had the opportunity to come work uh, at whitworth university in spokane washington which is about four hours from where my family is in western montana as soon as i get here that need that desire for mountains is gone. That interest in painting mountains evaporates. I don't need to long for them. I don't need to want them. I don't need to paint them to have them with me. They're just out my window. And so the the paintings transitioned into that, that series titled Pivot, which is Pivot is the pivot irrigation fields, that kind of center arm that pivots around a, a center point to irrigate a field, right? Those circle pattern kind of fields. And so I moved to a place with vertical landscape, with mountains and trees and uh, wonderful scenery. And my interest in painting them is gone. And all I want is to paint the flatness. <laughs> because I, I start longing for the landscape of the Midwest. I, I long for the that kind of top-down, flat, 
expansive space. I, I think we all experience that we want what we don't have. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want what's not around. Uh, and so I wanted to paint the kind of landscapes of the, of the Midwest of flat space and transitioning into a more kind of abstract, fully abstract kind of view of, uh, of landscape painting. It was also due in part to my, my interest in quilt patterning, as well as uh, the, the patterns that exist in furrowed, plowed farm fields. It seems like that process, obviously, is something that becomes totally different. I was joking with you earlier if, uh, you know, using circle templates is a form of cheating, but, you know, the amount of layers and transparent colors and the sure number of circles kind of in these paintings that are kind of, I'm assuming that you're kind of, you know, elaborately making these grids and stuff like that, but maybe kind of describe the process a little bit because this is stuff that's really laborsome and, and interesting. So they're all in oil. They're on canvas, uh, stretched over a panel. So I have a hard surface to to kind of work against. Yeah, I'm using circle templates. Uh, some of the, the paintings that have bigger circles, they are of two different sizes. One is the size of an LP record mm-hmm. and the other is the size of a 45. <laughs> So there's, you know, easy circles that I just, you know, a few thousand of flying around. Everything else is, you know, it's all kind of hand-drawn on there with the the little circle template. Then everything else just gets kind of hand-painted. I start adding color and then I kind of push it back with really transparent layers of paint and then pull parts back and then push further away until they kind of become the way that they were the sort of labor-intensive kind of process of, of making paintings. It's the first time I've, I had really done paintings that took as long as, as these paintings took. I, obviously, I'm working on multiple paintings at, a, at the same time, but they would take months. Sometimes mm-hmm. some paintings would take a year or 18 months at their longest at times, and it really kind of slowed me down and uh, they were effort and labor for kind of the first time painting really felt that way. One thing we haven't oddly enough talked about is process. I'm curious, you know, I would imagine that maybe the landscape-esque kind of watercolors that you're doing before might kind of be spurred on by kind of like an observation or something like that or like an idealization. You know, are you kind of doing like preliminary work when you're working on these pivot paintings, is there any kind of like concept of like what the colors are going to be? Or is this something that you're, you know, just committing to something and then responding to it and then, you know, editing? Yeah, it's really the latter. There was no preliminary sketches. There was nothing that like I'm looking at. I'm just kind of exploring. In in terms of my color, uh, which I think this question pertains to, my color education from undergrad from, from Lyle was a, a purely experiential notion of color mm-hmm. to try to explore to just work through these things and then getting into graduate school and studying with Jim Mai color was a, a completely intellectual uh, way of understanding and um, that we can name and quantify and predict possibly what color might do and so with these paintings it was really just a like put something down then respond it was sort of using both the experiential and the intellectual understanding of, of color just trying things out putting blue all over the place and then being like, no, 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 I need to take that out. And so changing color over and over again until it, it seemed to feel right. And it strikes me as a totally different process, obviously, you know, versus like you were saying, I think maybe like 
maybe a shorter session in, in terms of some of those uh, landscapes that are smaller scale. And mm-hmm. what are the size of these kind of works? Were they kind of midsize or how big did they get? They range from around two by three feet to four by four feet. So yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty much something you got to stare at a while and then be like, nah, I'm going to rework this. And mm-hmm. yeah, you know, of course, like the idea of patterning is something that is about that work and obviously gets translated to some of your interests in quilt making. And, and you mentioned that already too, you know, what kind of shift happened in terms of maybe kind of changing some of those compositions? Cause obviously the quilt paintings that came after that, you know, and again, that pivot series ran, I think like 2016, mm-hmm. but then like, you know, later on, you know, we're kind of switching up those patterns and, I don't know, was there something that happened in terms of like kind of having more of like a direct relationship to quilts? My daughter was born. Well, there you go. <laughs> and that's really kind of what did it. I feel like the the, the pivot paintings uh, and, and looking at field patterns and farm field patterns, that these things uh, always kind of referenced quilts to me visually. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you're airplane and you're flying over the country and you look down and it, the landscape looks like a quilt. My daughter, uh, Locia, she was born in 2016. It was a really good time to kind of put a hard break to the pivot work that I've been doing and start working with quilt patterning. I wanted to have this kind of connection as I was welcoming a, a, a daughter into the world, this this connection, the, the reason that people make quilts, to wrap your arms around someone, to hold them close, to, to comfort and to to care for them. I don't sew, mm-hmm. I paint. And so I thought I'm very interested in the aesthetic of quilt patterns and the history of quilt making in America. And uh, and so I thought this was a really good opportunity to make that transition for myself, to, to do this work that I'd really been kind of thinking about and kicking around a little bit in my mind, even as far back as in graduate school, that there was something interesting about quilt making to me. And, and that now having having my daughter wanting to make these paintings that felt sort of warm and comforting at at least as as I thought them to be because I find geometric abstraction to be warm mm-hmm. it's not cold to me i I look at like a Frank Stella painting very hard edged and it feels like a big hug you know it's like it's exciting to me I feel alive when I see that kind of stuff Agnes Martin. Uh, Joseph Albers, right? I, I come alive at geometric abstraction and uh, using those patterns from from quilt making to sort of generate content, the kind of titles of of quilt patterns, the the narrative that's associated with them, the history in the United States, the idea of of being frugal and of making use of everything that you have. Right? Quilts are constructed out of scrap pieces left over from making curtains and dresses. And I like that notion of efficiency in terms of design as well as in terms of material that one has available to them. Well, and did they start out kind of more in that like really elaborate kind of like layered larger scale? Because obviously the the stuff that's very recent is much smaller. They did. They did. They started out, uh, the first quilt paintings were three feet by four feet. They've changed sizes uh, throughout time. The, The most recent quilt paintings, which coalesce to a, a much larger kind of grouping on the wall. But they were done, uh, started in 2020 when we were asked to to leave Whitworth University to shelter in place during the 
the, the pandemic and uh, like everyone, I felt isolated and lost and confused and didn't know where to turn or who to talk to about these things because everyone is dealing the same thing. And so I turned a little more inward and turned to the studio and started making these paintings that are six inches square that I could start and finish relatively quickly of single quilt blocks, so a single quilt pattern that sort of helped me mark time and helped me feel productive through this, but also carrying with them, I hoped, and I think they do maybe, I hope that they carried with them the, the notion of, of comfort and healing and of love that, that quilts afford. Uh, a blanket is one thing and it has use, but a quilt made by your grandmother or another loved one has special significance. And to me, I wanted to use these burns to create a, a kind of special significance to me as I was, like everyone, moving somewhat aimlessly through that really difficult time. Yeah, and I guess just to kind of think about like the totality of it, how many of them are there now at this point? Because, you know, I, I've seen, you know, the uh, studio shots and, you know, them installed, but I mean, are there like a 100 or so now or more? I've made... More than 200. Jeez. And, and how many of them do you paint over? Uh, none of them. Yeah, I don't no? think any of them. No. I, I, so, yeah, that started around March. I started the, the paintings. And then I've made 200 from March until November. Mm-hmm. I've kind of started uh, work that's a little bigger, 18 inches square. The same kind of idea, sort of making a little bigger sort of versions of them. Sure, sure. And I guess to think about some... More specifically, like there's ones like Quasar, for example, which you sent to me. And, Mm -hmm. you know, again, you can definitely kind of see that relationship in terms of like a a quilt. But are you thinking about these and and framing these any differently in terms of like, you know, because some of the titles are, you know, evocative of other things, you know? Yeah, the the titles are not my own. The the titles are the actual quilt block pattern. Okay. The, the the traditional quilt block pattern. That's like something that's common knowledge for somebody that studies quilts, I guess. Um, <laughs> that's me. <laughs> yeah. I work from a book called the Encyclopedia of Pieced Quilt Patterns, mm-hmm. other quilt books. But there are variations to, to various patterns like log cabin or flying geese or birds in the air or road to Arkansas or whatever. So many really wonderful quilt titles. But... Yeah, they are just the the, the traditional uh, quilt pattern name. Quasar, as you're talking about, is like a name that's existed for that quilt pattern for probably 80 years, maybe. What's going on in terms of like the color relationships with these? Because again, in your statement, you kind of describe, you know, literally like, you know, taking from these patterns. But I'm imagining all these color combinations are things that you're coming up with and, and you know, playing around through all the iterations of it. Working with these quilt patterns did something I don't know if I really intended, which was to take composition and shape completely out of my hand. So all I'm left with in this reduction is color. That's my choice. And so they really become, to me, exercises in uh, in color relationships, seeing how colors can work in something of harmony in concert with one another and how color can work in absolute dissonance with each other and finding both equally exciting and uh, working with the same quilt pattern and changing up the colors to see how the composition actually changes that what was negative space now becomes positive for instance 
uh, what was pushed forward is pushed back uh, contention on color relationships. In terms of like the process for these, I mean, are these like set up where you're kind of specifically painting different layers at different times? Or are you kind of like covering it in one layer, taping out, painting a shape, and then taping another shape to paint over the top of it? So the way they're constructed, I just, I have a block of three quarter inch MDF that's routered on the back so that they hang flush to the wall. Just mm-hmm. yeah, so sanded, draw the quilt pattern with pencil, and then I just start taping shapes off and painting them. There is, I would say, zero skill. like necessary knowledge to to make these i could teach patient junior high students how to make these paintings there's nothing that is is special in their construction kind of like that about these paintings that there is something kind of democratic about them in that way that it takes i don't want to be disingenuous because there there is an amount of skill and preconceived kind of knowledge i get that but but really it's not tough to 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 make these they're not a demonstration of my skill i guess right but it seems like they're also kind of like a a vehicle to kind of explore different color combinations and you know like you're talking about kind of starting these during a time when you know we're all kind of feeling very isolated and having something kind of direct you you know to explore is like you know maybe just coming in and just going like okay i'm i'm feeling like turquoise is the answer today so i'm going to start with turquoise and then respond to it yeah that's a pretty good (laughs) estimation of how these work that it is i'm just exploring color and enjoying color and that's kind of the thing like just seeing what colors look like next to each other and uh, it was really rewarding these these paintings like were something that i could hold on to that could start and finish relatively soon i felt productive felt good about them the other thing was that they were like in terms of selling them it kind of participates with the goal too they were they're priced very cheap mm-hmm. um, because I wanted people to have them. And I wanted them to know that this was this kind of marker for me, this way to kind of keep my head above water during 2020 and that I wanted them to be affordable and available. So uh, that's been really nice. The The kind of response that I've gotten to them is unlike responses that I've gotten to a lot of my work. This one seemed to to resonate a little a little stronger in a way. Well, and it seems kind of different too. Like we've, you know, talked about that idea of, you know, quilts being kind of democratic and, you know, something of the people, you know, kind of thinking about a four foot painting that's, you know, maybe been labored over for 14 months or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, it seems like it's work maybe for, for people then I guess in a different way, you know, like, so I kind of think it's interesting to think about, you know, how you're still emotionally kind of, creating these color decisions, but then they're based off of these patterns that exist and kind of call back to that history of, of people, I guess. The the bigger paintings are nice. I like them a lot, but they're they're paintings, you know. They they sort of exist in a different space. And and those bigger paintings seem to me to maybe compete too much with with quilting. It it made it look like I was trying to like assert some kind of equalness to to quilting which was not my intention i'm not a quilter i am not good at sewing and i also didn't want to use my like privilege as a white male heterosexual middle class guy who has some access to art spaces to be like i'm gonna make quilts art now because they already were they were as good or better than mid-century abstraction I uh, write in my statement, but 
I, I sort of wanted to to use my interest in quilts to talk about quilt making more than any type of attempt to compete, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And I'm assuming then, too, like it's a totally different experience, you know, seeing these singularly than, you know, seeing them in, in piles, you know, like essentially piles, right? I mean, like they're gridded out and everything, but I mean, like how, how many of you shown at like the same time? The last exhibition I had, uh, I had 144. <laughs> I chose 144 because the curator of the Brian Oliver Gallery, Lance Cinema, was asking me how many he wanted. And I said, I want a gross amount. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't think he, he thought that I was serious, that I, I wanted an actual gross of mm-hmm. them, which is 144. So a dozen, dozen. And did you just stand like an auctioneer then in front of him and then just you know, have people <laughs> bid on them? Or Oh, no, no, no. They were, just, they were just, just there. You could just pick them out. I mean, it was, you know, it was 2020, so not a lot of traffic. As you're, as you're looking at this, you know, this is something that you've really encompassed everybody's space without having to labor over this one thing. So it kind of probably is something that, you know, as somebody's, you know, theoretically able to see it, you know, you're seeing it on this big level, but then also you start kind of going in and looking at all of these, these variations and how many different like types of patterns are there relative to this? I mean, are there just like endless amounts or? There are, uh, there are endless amounts of Quilt patterns are endless variations. Really affords one if they, if they choose to make unlimited variation on even single quilt patterns, like log cabin, for instance, mm-hmm. one of my favorite quilt patterns. But yeah, for me, uh, the paintings and the this is not a sales pitch, but the price point in the paintings was really to like put them in the hands of other people. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm making a, a three by four foot painting of a quilt, and it took me eight months to a year and the amount of money that i have to charge to sort of like make it worth my time is unreasonable to Mm me being like yeah that's three thousand dollars or whatever you know like that's not that's not a good price (laughs) uh but you know these little paintings i was selling them for 50 bucks because i thought that that price wasn't like you know it wasn't a cash grab it was just to like put them in people's hands yeah and to allow them to buy multiples of them and to kind of pair them together as they, they saw fit. When we make big involved paintings, there's kind of a preciousness, you know, I kind of want to keep those. It took so long and so that's why we charge so much. But but these, I loved every one of them, but I wanted them to be in in other people's houses. I wanted them to be out, you know. It's funny to me because, like, again, that initial question where I'm asking you about that pattern type like Quasar you know, when you mention a, a, you know, one of the ones that you sent me, log cabin. You know, even though I know that that's like a specific type of pattern, it's interesting to me because, like, you know, they obviously start doing different things in terms of like, you know, it kind of has this, uh, you know, spatial quality where you're kind of like looking into something mm-hmm. versus you know ones that might be just more flat like this. Again, it's fascinating the names of some of these, like Washington's puzzle. I have no idea where that comes from, but obviously that's something that's just you know extremely flat. Yeah, and watching the puzzle is just a weird offset grid. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, it's just like a diagonal grid. But do you think that's something that kind of adds to that appeal to them? You know, as as people, I'm assuming, you know, started picking them out and going like, oh, I want this one, you know. What what have they been saying in terms of the way that they kind of relate to them? Because, you know, to me, like, to not have that background is if I'm looking at something like Attic Window, I'm kind of like, you know, trying to find something that I can relate to, I guess, visually. 
at attic window specifically is i mean you can see the kind of three-dimensional uh, sort of left and bottom sill mm-hmm. and then kind of go through there so there's kind of a three-dimensional space some of the quilt patterns are more dimensional uh, in terms of spatial representation others are, are really flat there's been times that people are wanting to like pick up one of them or two of them and they're looking at a, a 144 of them and wondering which two or three they <laughs> might like and there's been a lot of times that uh, i have pointed things out to people my wife and i and and Lucia live in uh, spokane and we have a house and we are next door neighbor marilyn she came to look at my show and she wanted to, to get a couple paintings and uh, i was like oh you might be interested in this one and we pulled it off the wall and the, the <laughs> title of quilt pattern is next door neighbors mm-hmm. <laughs> it's sort of like there's those kind of narratives that like i want to speak to 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 people like oh you might like this one you're from arkansas you might like this one this has to do with political history or or something it has to do with hardship or this has to do with good times so kind of pointing people to those directions to see like that these quilt patterns can become symbol for good and bad time. Yeah, and it strikes me, obviously, considering the pandemic and everything, that this is something where you're, you know, taking this difficult time and kind of like allowing that to kind of shift your work into a different way, which is like really kind of interesting. You know, we've been talking about these uh, recent, you know, hundreds of paintings that you're making and. You know, it sounds like you're kind of doing almost like a factory job. I think I even remember recently seeing something about this on Facebook where you're just like, oh, I built another 800 panels. Are you kind of just at this kind of like moment, just kind of knocking stuff out and just kind of going with this and, and seeing where it goes? Or is there like an exhibition in mind in the future or proposals that you want to do? Or are you just making? I'm really just making. Uh, a friend of mine, Jeff Houston, who lives in Bakersfield, California, he's writing a grant that he and I could maybe work that the summer. But... Yeah, just my interest is just making stuff and then like finding exhibitions, finding spaces to to show. But what makes me most happy is to just make them. So if somebody did want one of these or was curious, I mean, do you have like a master PDF of like a catalog or what's what's going on with that? Uh, I do. I do not. (laughs) That is a uh, an amount of work that is terrifying to me. But uh, if you have any interest you can email me at r f i f i e l d so r fifield at whitworth w h i t w o r t h dot edu you can email me there you can also find me on facebook just my name robert fifield instagram i'm pretty sure it's just my name also both of them are very public and open because i got nothing to hide <laughs> Like you said, you know, like your focus is making work and, and living life. So I just want to make stuff and uh, bring my daughter into the studio. She wants to just make stuff. I, I kind of like feel alive from that, like the way she approaches making. I'm like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> just make and suffer zero consequences. Just make it. All right. That's all I want to do. Right on. Right on. Well, again, thanks so much for taking the time to, to talk to me all about it today. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. 
Thanks so much to Rob for joining me. If you want to find out more about him, you can find him on Instagram at Robert Fifield. And of course, check him out and say hello on Facebook. Maybe you can nab one of those paintings, which would be a steal for 50 bucks. And once again, his contact is rfifield at whitworth.edu. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Once again, we do have a bunch of interviews up on studiobreak.com, which are all available, so check them out. Each of those posts have images of their work as well as links to the artist's websites. You can, of course, listen right with the default player, but you can also click those hyperlinks and subscribe to the podcast, and then that way you've always got something to listen to while you're working away in the studio. It makes a great studio companion. Music today is by the longing-to-be-renamed Remedial Indie Band, which features myself, Ben Cohan, and Brett Beery. You can check out Ben Cohan's paintings by visiting his Instagram, mbencohanstudio. And, of course, you can check out Brett Beery. He makes a ton of music. He's got an album up on Bandcamp. Follow him on Instagram at Brett Beery. Of course, you can stay up to date with Studio Break in a variety of different places, so be sure to like our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter at Studio break and of course on instagram at studio underscore break it's always a great place to hear from listeners especially if you enjoy an episode or you can always shout it out to me at david linaway on instagram and twitter you can also find my website at davidlinaway.com so check out some of those paintings if you haven't before and we did it we just wrapped another episode of studio break hope that you enjoyed it as much as i did and i hope that you're staying safe out there making a lot of great work staying productive staying positive we'll talk to you real soon